I'm Coulter DeVries, owner of Ranch Investor Advisory and Brokerage Services. I'm an accredited land consultant with the Realtor Land Institute and proud member of ASFMRA. The Ranch Investor Podcast is the most downloaded and informative industry-specific content that intrigues while entertains. Thank you for coming on the Ranch Investor Podcast, Jim. I appreciate appreciate you taking this opportunity, the time to spend an hour with me and educate me on on what you've been doing since I started down your path listening to kick the hay habit while I was swathing hay. Yep. A lot of people do that. <laughs> 10 years ago, I was cutting dryland hay. I had your disc set of kick the hay habit. And I think by the by the third disc, I was ready to just park the swather in the field and walk away. But you didn't. <laughs> well, I, I had to finish the job, Jim. Mm-hmm. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Jim Garrish kicked the hay habit with American Grazing Lands Coalition Services. Services. Tell me, what is American Grazing Land Services? American Grazing Land Services is our um, family business. We used to be even a little more vertically integrated. Uh, so I do the workshops, conferences, consulting, that kind of thing. And then my wife, Dawn, and our son, Galen, they handle the product sales side of the business. We sell electric fence products, stock water supplies, uh, livestock weighing equipment, and uh, forage seed. How about the schools? Well, <clears throat> okay, so the schools, I'm a hired gun. I do schools that way. Um, I tried putting on a few schools, you know, through our business. And just quite frankly, um, the work that it takes to get everything organized and make sure everything's going to flow is uh, something that was more than we cared to do. So I'm very happy to let other organizations, uh, individuals organize the schools and I'll come in and do the teaching. Okay. So. My uh, my younger but taller brother attended your program here this summer. He was probably your best C student ever. <laughs> my best C student ever. I don't know. We've had some really good C students. <laughs> well, he won't share with me. Uh, he tells me it's proprietary information, and I would have to pay him about $3,000 to share what he learned. Really? <laughs> I don't know if he has a licensing agreement with you. Um, no, he, he doesn't, but that's very entrepreneurial of him. <laughs> also pretty mercenary. <laughs> so what what do what is what did he learn? Uh, what do people learn at the schools? You know, it depends on the individual where they're starting from. Uh, we have uh, everybody from urban refugees who want to start a farmer ranch who know nothing about what profitable ranching and soil health and all of that entails and we have lifelong ranchers who uh, also have no idea what property what you know drives profit or what soil health means so there's a wide wide range of experience and then we have people who come who've been doing it for years and you know just want to 
pick up one more new piece of information or anything. But uh, to actually answer your question, we largely teach the um, uh, grazing management principles um, that are based on ecosystem processes. You know, it's it's about working with Mother Nature rather than against Mother Nature. And so we do that. We talk about the uh, plant, animal, soil interface. Uh, there's a, you know, good bit of economics that comes into the, the school also. So um, the you, you could say the biology of ranching and the economics of ranching. Now, does this is this a multi-step or a multi-phase program? Is it you have a class one year and then and then you step it up the next year and you keep progressing? Um, is it is it repeat education or is it one time I learn it all from the guru and I'm set to be the gre greatest grazer in the world? Okay, the specifically talking about the program that your brother came to uh, that we do with University of Idaho. Um, that is multi a multi teacher school. Uh, I also do ones where I'm the only instructor. And we do some that are entirely classroom. We do some that are a mixture of classroom and field work. Uh, so there's a variety of venues and options. In term for some of the schools that I do where I'm the only instructor, we do a beginning course and an advanced course. Um, with the University of Idaho school, um, we, you know, we do surveys of the attendees and a good number of them will say that they are interested in uh, attending an advanced workshop. But then the few times when we've tried to organize an advanced workshop, we didn't get enough people to sign up to take it. So uh, there you are. When I was with the University of Missouri, we did uh, a, a beginning, usually two beginning schools a year in an advanced school, um, almost every year. And um, I don't, I actually don't know if they still do the advanced school since I left there 19 years ago. I haven't checked in to see what they're doing. It just seems like go. I've attended your uh, a presentation of yours put on by the South Dakota Grazing Lands Coalition uh, or South Dakota Grasslands right. Coalition, and that was like drinking through a fire hose. And yeah, I I, I took uh, B level notes. I was a B student, I would say. Okay. Um, but then applying it and following through, it's kind of like reading a diet book like it makes sense to me why i should diet but then actually applying it and doing it is is very difficult okay um it's interesting that you would bring that up that is actually why we started doing the multiple multi-day schools in missouri we started that program in 1989 and i'm pretty sure it's the first one like it anywhere in the country and then a lot of states, including Idaho, including South Dakota, have done spinoffs of uh, the program that we originated in Missouri. And it wasn't so much. Uh, so if you just heard one presentation at a multi-speaker conference, 
That is enough just to give you enough information to start making yourself dangerous. <laughs> now, now picture being at a uh, field day at a university research station with a new group of people coming by. They're there for 15 minutes and that's it. And the animal scientists that I work closely with, um, we came to the conclusion that it was real, really silly, pointless to try to um, present to people a um, the idea of a whole different approach to grazing management, to try to do it in an hour presentation at a conference wasn't effective. A single day program where we had their attention the full day we could do a better job of explaining things to people and actually getting them um, thinking about getting on board. It's when we started doing three-day workshops in Missouri. The Missouri program was three-day. What we do in Idaho is four-day. And a key part of the three, the multi-day schools, the three or four-day schools, is when we give a set of students, you know, split them up in teams, and in this most recent school. Uh, with U of I, uh, we had six teams, four, per, four people per team, and they actually get a group of cattle and an assigned pasture, and we give them assignments with different grazing objectives. And that is what really trips people's trigger, get them to, oh, wow, now I understand what we're trying to do, at least most of them. And you'll have to remind me your brother's name because I don't remember. Wyatt DeVries. Yeah, Wyatt. Um, uh, I, because I was hoping that I could just come out and say, of course, Wyatt didn't get it, but I couldn't remember <laughs> his name, so I had to set that up. But but he did fine. But that is really the why we like doing uh, a classroom instruction and then a field session that you know builds from that. And then the next day's classroom builds from what we saw in the field yesterday, but we'll have a new assignment today. And so the uh, the classroom and the field just build on each other. The field also gets people out of their chairs, out in the fresh air, wakes them back up and, you know, gives them a hands-on learning opportunity. Yeah, it, sound, it sounds like it's tangible that they actually – they actually get to use their hands and apply it and be tested. And maybe the fear of being judged by your peers and it puts a little pressure on you to perform. Oh, a little bit. Well, I guess a question I, I have for you, Jim, I just came from Montana state university's annual economic forum where the econ professors and a representative from the Fed Bank in Kansas City. They come and talk about the ag economy. And it sounds like 2021 was record net farm income. So when your commodity prices doubled, but your inputs only went up 30%, uh, there's been a lot of guys who built a lot of equity. Delinquencies are down. Net farm income is up, uh, cash flows are up. How's that been for your business 
when when you're uh, when you're trying to tell people how to be more profitable, they don't need to be more profitable today. Well, that's interesting that you had people telling you that. And yes, some of the numbers do support that. When I've recently been in Nebraska, Iowa, and Kansas, all states that grow a lot of corn, and the report I got from actual producers in the field at seven dollar corn. The inputs have gone up uh, enough that their gross margin per acre is no better at seven bucks than it was at four thirty-five. So there's something else a little more going on. Well, you know, another thing I got out of today, Jim, that's probably difficult for your business is uh, it looks like farm programs are going to be solid for the next several administrations and the next farm bill and the next Congress, doesn't matter who's in office or, or who's in Congress, it's that there's going to be safety nets. And uh, I mean, what's what's my incentive to reach out to you, the guru, who's just going to tell me how to change my program and cut my costs? You're not telling me how to raise a cow that produces golden wool. Uh, I'm not selling cows for more. You're just telling me how to cut my costs. And things are going okay right now. And <laughs> this year right now, things are going okay. They're not going to be. Everything is cyclic. Um, you know, we see people fall off the wagon when uh, prosperity comes. And a lot of those people do not stay in the business. They fall out and they don't recover from it. Um, we... You know, there's there's one thing, uh, cutting costs. If you trim costs, you still have to contend with that cost every time there's a change in it. Uh, we are more about eliminating costs rather than just trimming costs. Uh, right now, the average cost to carry a beef cow in the U.S. is for herds over 100. Um, is in the mid 600 650 uh when this year's numbers come in it's probably going to be uh, well into the 700s i don't know if it'll break 800 but it'll be up there the most profitable producers that we work with um doing the same accounting you know they're down around 400 bucks and it's largely because they eliminate uh, a lot of costs. And we already talked about kick the hay habit. And one of the first costs they eliminate is uh, making hay and then it's feeding hay. And I think it's more important actually to, to stop making hay than it is to stop feeding hay. Is that now, because if you make it, you're encouraged, you're encouraging yourself to feed it and just keep doing that? Well, until uh, this current drought, very few places in the country was the value of hay um, greater than the cost to produce it. In the eastern half of the U.S., almost all hay is being produced um, or being is, is being sold for less than the cost of production. And, you know, that simply doesn't make sense. Uh, depending on how you want to configure your hay fleet. Now, I figure it takes 600 beef cows to justify owning your own hay equipment. I was just talking 
um, with a rancher down in Colorado whose repair and maintenance bill on a per animal unit basis is $250. Our benchmark is $40. And they're a very typical um, type of operation. They, one of the great problems we have in the ranching industry is the majority of people have no idea what it costs them to do things. Now, if you look at, uh, are you familiar with SPA analysis, SPA, standardized performance appraisal? No, I'm not. What is that? Um, it is a uh, record keeping system that was developed in the uh, kind of mid 70s to mid 1980s by the Integrated Resource Management Committee. And it was, you know, hoped that it would become, you know, uh, use throughout the industry, and then we could compare apples to apples. Uh, you can benchmark yourself against, you know, producers in your county, in your state, in your region. Um, and generally, when you look at an analysis, they're sorted out by the the top fifteen percent profitability operators, the bottom fifteen percent, and then you have the seventy percent in the middle. That is the average. And we have no interest in the average because average return on investment for most ranches in the U.S., that average figure generally runs about one and a half percent plus or minus. That's not a very lucrative business. The top 15 percent of operations consistently make double digit return on assets, generally 15, 16 percent kind of average. And then the bottom 15, they're losing equity at that same pace. And when you look at SPA analysis and the factors that really drive profitability in particularly the cow-calf industry, um, it's very clear that most people are focused on entirely the wrong things. Just using uh, weaning weight as an example, you know, Cattlemen like to talk about weaning weight and all that. I haven't seen an analysis in 30 years that has weaning weight as anything more than about 6% of the uh, factor affecting profitability. You know, feed cost is the overwhelming one. Usually something greater than 50% of the variation in profitability is explained simply from feed costs. And then you start going down the list of um, what really is determining profitability and after feed costs, particularly in the era 2014 through 2020, the number two factor was cow depreciation. A uh, whole lot of ranchers don't even believe that cow depreciation is a real thing. And it's just something economists came up with to make the industry look bad. Um, but it is a real huge cost and you know cow prices are going to be trending upward the next couple of years because the, the herd numbers going down and so probably what's this is 22 from 2025 to 2030 um if the basic patterns of the industry hold once again uh cow depreciation will be a huge factor from um, like 2016 17 and 18 cow depreciation was a bigger cost of being in the business than was feed costs after cow depreciation comes equipment and facility depreciation. Um, 
most up outfits are overcapitalized in terms of the equipment and the facilities that they have for the number of animal units that they run. It's just too big of a number. Okay. Um, I would actually have to look to sort out the orders of the next, but um, um, uh, weaning rate, you know, what percent of your cows bring a live calf to the weaning pen every year? That is the first actual performance number or value that figures into um, the drivers of profitability. It's usually two, two or three notches above um, uh, winning weight. Now, what's interesting to me, very interesting, and I use this in a lot of my presentations, I take the top eight drivers because I want to get down to the, that eighth one, which is scale of operation. And a lot of us still want to believe, get big, get out. You got to have a thousand cows, you know, to have a viable business. In the uh, a uh, spa meta analysis, you know, that I've seen, scale of operation is less than one percent of the factors of profitability. You can run a hundred cows profitably, or you can run a hundred cows and lose your shirt. You can run ten thousand cows profitably. Or you can run 10,000 cows and lose your pants. You know, it's, um, it's all the other factors. If you don't take care of, you know, feed, feed costs, depreciation issues, the um, rebreeding and live calf weight, uh, scale of operations, you know, just getting bigger isn't going to fix it. If you're already losing $200 per cow, getting another 100 cows isn't going to save you. Well, that that's on a... That's variable cost, but isn't isn't my opportunity cost of labor and my time? Isn't that a fixed cost and overhead that would have to be optimized? I mean, if I can make eighty thousand dollars driving a road grader for the county, shouldn't I do that rather than run a hundred head? Well, how about if you take that hundred head, carry their progeny out to uh, finish as grass-fed beef, develop your premium market, and earn $12,000, you know, per steer. You can make a very good living on a hundred cows if you're doing something like that. And when you do that, where do you need to spend that extra time you have? Because you only have a hundred cows and, you know, that's just a little <laughs> part-time job. That's where you spend it you know, in market development and um, things of that nature. Okay. I, I, I understand that. I, I guess you did um, kind of change my paradigm a little bit just now, Jim, because I was always under the impression most ranches are long on labor. You talked about them being long on equipment earlier, that they have more equipment than they need. There, okay. I've, I've always figured that, uh yeah. most ranches have more labor than they need if you have a husband and wife who are running 300 head to me uh, that's like okay your husband and wife team should be running 800 head right yeah um animal units per fte would be in that top five profitability drivers 
I just couldn't think of them off the top of my head and particularly the order that they were in. But yeah, animal units per FTE comes in there. Now you have a, do you have a book, uh, another one that came after Kick the Hay Habit? Well, um, my first book, Management Intensive Grazing. Okay, that was before Kick the Hay Habit. Yeah, that was before Kick the Hay Habit. That was 2004. Kick the Hay Habit was 2010. And then four or five years ago, um, I did a revised second edition of Allen Nation's Quality Pasture book. And so that book is about one third Allen's original writings, one third me editing uh, his chapters to bring it up to the modern era. And then a third is uh, new writing because in, in Allen's uh, originally original quality pasture book, he talked a lot about using commercial fertilizer to improve the quality of pasture and all that. I mean, we haven't fertilized here for nine years. And there's, there's, if you're taking care of the biology underground and you have good species diversification above ground, which those two tie closely together, there's really no need for commercial fertilizer. So we wanted to shift the emphasis of the quality pasture book away from dependence on uh, commercial fertilizer and shift it to soil biology and soil health and managing for those factors. And then most recently, just earlier this year, um, I've got a smallish book. It's only 90 pages, I think, on irrigated pasture. So what what has been the big change in the last almost uh, almost 20 years since you wrote MIG, Management Intensive Grazing, in 2004, it would have been hard to <clears throat> sell beef direct to consumer that just, you know, unless you were at some uh, Portland farmer's market, it, it would have been very difficult. That market has changed. People are demanding more local, more know your farmer. But what else has changed? I mean, drones have drone technology has come along long the, ways. Yeah, um, the, the increasing awareness of the role of soil biology in all aspects of agriculture production, livestock health, human health, that has been the biggest change in the last 20 years. And to me, the flat, the foundational research paper that started that ball rolling uh, was just in 2007. That's only 15 years ago. And, you know, the whole concept of how we view agricultural land um, is changing except within the mainstream of the industry i mean uh, you know I, I was just to the midwest and those guys are just gonna continue to destroy you know all the land resources of that region if they do not stop what they're doing and we, we look at the plains the dust bowl the, you know the dust storms that are happening now um we have known for 90 years what bare ground um, does to land degradation, poor health, poor water quality, yeah, all of these things. And we haven't learned our lesson, and a huge part of why we continue to do it is those idiotic government support programs, you know, that you mentioned earlier on. Um, 
the main role of USDA is to further the destruction of American agriculture, as far as I can tell. You bring up a very good point that Vince Smith, he's an economist, a 30-year economist with Montana State, just retiring this year in his lecture today, kind of his farewell goodbye. He stood in a room full of farmers, presenting to farmers and ranchers and said, um, basically, price supports and subsidized crop insurance is causing the death of um, basically our soils. It's causing the death of our ecology. And that's because not because the American farmer is greedy or stupid. It's because they are reasonable. So they're, in, they're, they're incentivized to do the wrong thing. Yes. So, Highly incentivized. Yeah. When, when your farm programs pay $2.60 for every dollar you put in to subsidize crop insurance, that means you are incentivized to go farm every acre you can, even marginal sandy ground, mm-hmm. because you're, gonna, you're making 260% return on that policy. Do you see that changing? I mean, will the 2023 farm bill have a little more, uh, how about we start incentivizing ecology and conservation a little better? Is it, are we still incentivizing stable food production so we can fight wars, Jim? Do we want to go down this path? Yes, I love doing these philosophical talks. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So it keeps people we, listening. We, we, we have a badly messed up country and it's uh, badly messed up from both sides. Neither the far right nor the far left have answers that will actually solve our problems. Neither the far left nor the far right is responsible for, oh, I should say they are both equally responsible, you know, for the mess that we're in. And it's all of us who are working in the middle um, that have a really hard time having our voices heard. Now, if we look at um, historically, a lot of people on the far right, you know, have been, I should say a lot of people in agriculture have migrated towards the far right. And it is really interesting, those same people who, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago were advocating to have the government completely out of agriculture and have no farm support programs. They're the now, now the ones, you know, raking in money and, you know, can't break their addiction to, you know, the government welfare spend. And it's really hilarious that they want to talk about, you know, black women in the cities being welfare queens and all that. Uh, the other hypocrisy of it just, you know, revolts me. And then we have on the far left, people who have no understanding of what it takes to produce food, who have no understanding of why it is so critically important to have livestock integrated into farming systems, you know, for the uh, health of the soil and use processing of uh, biomass back to nutrients. And so they, you know, uh, from that side, they want to dictate that this is how you must farm. And it is, you know, totally opposite of the industrial farming that's over there. So once again, we have a politicized uh, divide between 
uh, farmers and urban people, but it's almost flip-flopped from, you know, that the positions that people took, you know, 30, 40 years ago. And um, uh, eh, it's hard to get people to listen. You know, I, I try to write my uh, senators and congressmen. I used to do it on a real regular basis, but they have just so disgusted me with, you know, their in unwillingness to do something for America rather than, you know, just their party. And I've kind of quit writing to them, but the issues are getting so critically serious now that I got to get back on it. Maybe I need to get on the bus, go to Washington and beat on their doors. I don't know. Well, it's, it's, it, it is a sad state of affairs. It is. And this upcoming 2023 farm bill is going to be, uh, nothing new. Much of the same, the old. It's going to be dominated by corn, dairy, soybeans, cattlemen, uh, calling for more price support, subsidized insurance, uh, trade favorability for my industry. Uh, what can you do for us, my constituents? It's it's going to be more supports for the for the big uh, trade organizations. Right. It seems like though, with with government programs not going to large corporate farms or in, in my case you know a lot of uh ranches and people that are concerned about my my name ranch investor uh absentee ownership they don't qualify for farm programs which in my view is good um i have a number of wealthy clients who you know bought a ranch you know, I couldn't say on a whim, you know, some of them have bought it as an investment. Some of them have bought it as a hunting property. Some of them have flat out bought it as midlife crisis. And those are actually some of the people who are most open to new ideas and, you know, doing something differently. And um, to me, it's a good thing that they don't qualify for uh, a lot of these programs because they're motivated to actually make the ranch functionally profitable and ranches can be very profitable and without, without government times, support. And a lot of times they have an investment horizon of 10, 15, 20 years. So they understand that you can't just mine the soils, take, 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 take. And at the end of your investment period that your principal is going to be protected. That's not the case. And, when it's maybe in the case of Bill Gates and some of the large corporate farms, when you're bearing the full risk, you're going to be more inclined to practice soil conservation and crop rotation and soil cover and diversity of species. We'll see. It's yet to be seen. I don't know how the institutions are managing their farms, but they are buying the best soils. They're not buying the the terrible fickle ground, the sandy, they, yeah. they know what they're looking for and because they don't get price supports. Yeah. And unfortunately, uh, I don't know what Bill Gates is going to do, but everything he talks about agriculture worldwide, uh, the man hasn't got a clue. To <laughs> feeding Africa, the only way that African people are going to, you know, not starve and survive is if they are, producing at the indigenous level, taking care of their family, taking care of their village, industrial farming um, will, I can not see it in any way being a positive for Africa. 
or Central Asia or China. I agree with you. And, and you know, one thing that struck me recently is uh, deforestation of the Amazon. And they're blaming that on cattlemen. And, you know, there's probably some truth to that. I think there's you know, there's a little bit of truth in every accusation might not be 98% truth, but uh, what it would be a little better for the American consumer and potentially the Amazon rainforest is if Brazilian beef was labeled Brazilian beef in U.S. shopping markets. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, again, you know, USDA sold us out completely when they allowed uh, first it was JBS, but now it's others to bring you know the quarters into this country running through a u.s plot plant processing packaging and calling it a product of the u.s as i said i think usda's main purpose is to destroy american agriculture because they are doing an awfully good job of it <laughs> well as i as we come off the macro and bring it back down to our listener who's in the 1990s eight Ford F-150 right now, thinking, how the hell do I make this ranch work, Jim Garrish? Bring it back down to the microeconomic level. Where do where does a guy start? Because I get so many calls, it doesn't matter the wealth. Uh, I have people who are worth 20 million, people who are worth 200,000 say, it don't pencil. It don't pencil, it doesn't make any sense. It's an emotional, irrational decision to buy land, to buy a ranch and to try to do something for a profit that so many are willing to do for free. How many of those people calve in the winter months? <laughs> well, and, and yeah, they're, well, they're running leases all over hell too, Jim. <laughs> worldwide, if you talk to the serious ranching countries, Australia, South Africa, Argentina, Uruguay, uh, I'll throw New Zealand in there too. Um, they will tell you that moving your calving season, you know, two or three weeks one way or the other is a break point or win point financially for an operation. And uh, I presume you know Dallas Mount. Very well, yeah. All right. So Dallas, uh, about 10 years ago, published the first spa summary that compared uh, – winter calving with what I would call green grass calving. Some places that's in the spring, some places it's in the summer, but it's calving when there is green grass underfoot. And that in and of itself was about a $300 difference in the net returns with winter calving operations earning 200, excuse me, $300 less net per cow-calf pair than those who calved on green grass. Selling and the way you, you can do the analysis with different you know points of selling, whether the producer actually does it or not. And so the summer calvers, if you put them selling calves at the same weaning age as the uh, winter calvers, they're selling well, I'm sorry, at the same date, they're selling 100 pounds left less per cow exposed uh, in that analysis that Dallas had, which was from uh, uh, Wyoming and Nebraska ranchers. The winter calvers were selling approximately 500 pounds of wean calf per cow exposed. 
the summer calvers 400 pounds. So they're selling 100 pounds less calf for cow exposed, but netting $300 more. Now, that's a pretty telling story right there. So that is a start point. If, if you're in the cow-calf business, get out of winter calving. And the further north you are, the more important it is to do that sooner rather than later. And then it is figure out how are you going to graze more days of the year. Right now, with where hay prices are uh, currently, you know, talking for beef cow quality hay, $160, $180 a ton through, you know, part of this region where we are, dairy quality, $260, $280, $300 plus. Um, and then we look at our, our costs of grazing and for years, I've, you know, been able to basically say there's about a dollar a day difference between grazing and feeding hay. So if you can cut out a hundred days of hay feeding, that's a hundred bucks per cow that you've saved. That cost differential now is around $2, 210. I think the last uh, time I ran these numbers for somebody. Um, they were $2.10 more per hay feeding day than they were on a grazing day. So now that's 210 bucks per, uh, you know, for if you cut out 100 days, it's 210 bucks. Now, if you can actually figure out consistently how to do this in your environment um, without making hay on your place, and that's a lot of in my consulting work, that's what I help a lot of people do. To where you can actually sell, get, get you know, get rid of the hay equipment, then you eliminate the overhead of that whole deal, also. Um, and so that's what I early on when I said we're not about trimming costs, we are about uh, eliminating costs. And so if you don't have to make hay and you don't have to have that fleet of equipment, boom, that ownership costs, those depreciation costs go away. If you don't. If you're not calving in the wintertime and you don't need that calving barn, well, you should have figured this out 20 years ago before you built the albatross, you know, hanging around your neck. <laughs> yeah. That's another thing. I And, you know, Beef Magazine, Drovers, Progressive Cattlemen, you know, every winter you can count on there being an article about, you know, some family who's got their, you know, massive calving barn and, you know, they run their 800 head of cows. Every one of them calves in here and we take care of it. And no wonder you're going broke. Yeah. Because, because you're doing the cows work for her rather than letting her do her job. Her job is delivering a live baby on green grass and bringing a healthy calf to the weaning pen. That's her job, not your job. I had a, I had a brokerage client that I pitched uh, doing some consulting for and the price that I shot him, he said, boy, I just can't afford that culture. I can't justify it because I, I just built a brand new calving. Yeah. <laughs> um, when I when I tell people what I charge and they say, well, I don't think I can afford you. I say, if you don't think you can afford me, you can't afford not to have me come. What? Uh, so on that note, what would be the the minimum? animal units to afford Jim Garrish because you still do consulting, right? Last September, I semi-retired, which meant I wasn't going to take on any more new clients, but I would take care of existing clients. 
Well, guess what? I've taken on about eight new ones <laughs> since last September because their projects were interesting enough to, and, you know, large enough uh, to uh, say, yeah, I'll go ahead and do it. Now, on January 1st, I'm going to start collecting my retirement pay for my years at University of Missouri. And the last thing I want to do is have to pay all that back in taxes because I'm working too much. So I, I said I took on eight new clients. I turned away 20 some. Uh, I mean, there's just no end to the demand. Um, I'm I'm just older than I used to be. And I don't get as much done in a day. And at the end of the day, when I only did half as much as what I'm used to doing, I'm twice as tired. So it's it's got to go somewhere. But the minimum number of animal units to afford me. In the real world of ranching, uh, it's probably just a couple hundred. I'll tell you about uh, one of my most interesting clients. This was a guy uh, in Northern Virginia outside of Washington, D.C., and he called me. And I'm going to say his name because he wouldn't mind. He said his name was David Schumacher. And there's something vaguely familiar about his voice. and he had 19 cows his girlfriend had 23 or 25 something like that and um so i went there uh for 19 cows flew into dulles airport there's a guy standing there um you know, outside of baggage claim waiting for me. And I looked at him and I said, you're that David Schumacher, aren't you? And David Schumacher was uh, ABC's lead correspondent in Vietnam. And okay. every and every night, you know, when I was a teenager growing up, you know, I heard this is David Schumacher reporting from Play Coup or somewhere. And so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, he obviously made his money somewhere else. He owns a whole bunch of radio stations on the East Coast and, you know, different stuff like that. And, you know, he was old um, when I started working with him. And he's even older now. But, yeah, I went there for 19 cows. And, you know, he became uh, one of the best friends, uh, you know, among my clients, one of my favorite people to visit because there's just no end to the stories. He was also uh, ABC's. White House correspondent when Watergate broke. So, you know, he was right in the, the thick of that. So he probably couldn't really afford me for his 19 cows. Uh, but I went and, you know, met a wonderful man and, you know, had a good time. Well, I know, I think you have worked with Siebens in Cascade, Montana. Yes. That is, I was on Siebens this summer for their, mm -hmm. their range, uh, range tour. That is one of the most impressive operations I've seen. I mean, just animal health, breeding program, winter feed, summer grazing, the whole, the whole, uh, holistic relationship of, of beef production. Right. That was impressive. And I think you have also, have you worked with Lassance and race King? Uh, uh yeah, I did. Um, when they first got into their grass-fed business, um, I helped uh, them for the first crop of heifers that they were going to grass finish 220-some. You know, I 
pick the calves for them out of their uh, calf crop for animals that we thought would finish. I helped them uh, get their pivot set up for grazing for daily moves and finishing cattle. So yeah, I've... well, if you're if you're trying to retire without uh, too much of a tax consequence, and someone's thirsty and hungry for knowledge to to change their their grandpa passed away and they they have the ability to change now uh you're not taking on any, any more new clients what do you recommend they do where do they I'm going to try it? not to okay uh I'm going to continue to you know do workshops and you know seminars until I reach the point where uh I can't you know do this anymore and I think it'll be more because of the tax liability than it is because I physically can't go out and teach all day, day after day anymore. I can still do that. Um, what do I advise them to do? That is uh, a tough, tough question. I get asked a lot, well, who's going to, you know, carry on after me? And, um, you know, one of our sons is in the product sales side of our business. and we are growing at a rate of sales of about 50% a year for the last several years. And we actually, for the first time, we have someone, a non-family member working, you know, in that part of the business uh, also. So he's not going to go off and do consulting. Our oldest son, who, you know, as I said, we're not as vertically integrated as we used to be. Um, he was our fence contractor for, you know, a few years and, you know, built fence all over the, literally all over the country for us from California to South Carolina and Texas to Montana. Um, he runs a ranch down there. He's got his own cattle. He has three little kids. He doesn't want to leave home. You know, I had a vision uh, 10 plus years ago that those two boys would you know kind of take over and, you know, do a lot of what I do and they can do a lot of, you know, what I do, uh, but they've got their other businesses. I've tried to find, you know, other people who might become consultants, but mostly they, you know, get into a ranching position or they own a ranch and they got their own business to uh, take care of. And, you know, I don't own a ranch now, but seven months of the year, I still run a six to 800 animal unit grazing operation, you know, for a, a ranch here in Idaho. Um, and I'm going to have to quit doing that sometime too, because I, I, I do have some other things I want to do in life <laughs> <laughs> besides just this. You don't strike me as the carnival cruise liner type though, Jim. No. Um, I took yesterday off and, you know, hiked eight miles of rugged country over on the other side of the valley. And if I could do that three or four days a week, that's what I would do three or four days a week is go out and, you know, hike eight hours a day rather than work those eight hours a day. Well, in the meantime, while you're still practicing, Jim, American Grazing Land Services, we've got management intensive grazing and kick the hay habit. Am I forgetting anything else? Quality pasture and keeping it green. That's the new irrigation book. Um, if people need, you know, fencing, stock water, seed, any of those things, you can visit our website, shop online. Uh, Don handles all of our uh, pasture and range seed sales. 
she does usually uh, Todd Hart is our um, new guy in the business and um, he's not he's not an employee he's a, a partner in the LLC now he's usually the first voice you're going to hear on the phone if you call in um, and he handles a lot of the uh, you know telephone sales on the fencing Galen um, does all of the online stuff and our warehouse is over at his location and so he does all the shipping not all the shipping we have suppliers all over the country that drop ship but we keep a big big inventory you know here locally in idaho now that for our to ship to our mostly our western customers and um you know we're approaching the end of the year and it sure as hell looks like it's going to be another 50 percent you know increase in uh, sales volume it's 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 a wonderful problem to have um and, and, i guess and I, was, I just want to say in light of what a lot of people in our country are facing right now i appreciate the wonderful position that we are in there's as i said there's way too much demand for my services our product uh, offerings and sales you know just continue to grow so it's a good problem to have yeah and, and one itching question i have before we go here wrapping this up on the hour your clientele is it what what does it comprise of is it large corporate hobby ranches family farms multi-generational uh large uh family ranches absentee ownership who is who is it's, your new client um or, or I guess who's who is your portfolio? Who's 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 buying the Jim Garris program these it, days? It, it, it's broad, from small family operations, medium family operations, large family operations. Um, very, uh, I'm not doing much work with you know what you call corporate clients in the uh, you know 2010 2011 when organic dairy standards came in that required uh, dairy cows to be a minimum of 120 days on pasture with a minimum of 30 percent of their diet coming from the pasture you know i i worked with horizon i worked with uh, aurora worked with some of the larger uh, organic valley producers so there was a period there where i did quite a bit of dairy work so and the, the, those were big operations that were in the portfolio then. Um, in terms of corporate owned that are just bald faced corporates, um, if you, I, I think three of the five top ranch landowners in America who are well known, wealthy individuals i've done consulting work for three of the top five so like i said it, it's from the guy who has 19 cows to the guy who has 19 ranches okay well i appreciate you coming on jim uh I'm very always, happy to do it always in here i always enjoy hearing your opinion and maybe next time we can get it get philosophical again about the farm bill and where american agriculture is heading well, I, I know um, that there are regenerative groups who are working hard in Washington to try to get some changes in the farm bill that will be more supportive of um, 
you know, the, the soil health movement, regenerative ranching, uh, grass-fed production. The biggest obstacle to direct marketing, um, you know, more and more and more grass-fed beef is the lack of processing to get it done uh, at the local level in a timely manner. And that is a huge effort that uh, in, from NCBA to Regenerate America, they're all working on that processing plant issue. That is a key one. Um, rather than penalizing people who are doing the right things by having their land and grass and managing it effectively, let's get, let's reward them a little bit. And, uh, if we want to penalize somebody, let's penalize the people who are stu still losing 10 to 28 tons of soil per acre every year and destroying every aspect of functional biology. Those are the people who need to be penalized. Unfortunately, they're the ones who are getting most rewarded these days. Yeah, they, they have a pretty good backing from their uh, their soybean checkoff program. Mm -hmm. well, thank and, then, and then all of the associated industries from John Deere to uh, Merck, you know, they they all want to maintain the status quo. Yes. Well, Jim, I appreciate you coming on again. Thank you for your time. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, Coulter. Jim Garish, American Grazing Land Services, Management Intensive Grazing, and Kick the Hay Habit. Changed change me forever. Thanks, Jim. I'm well, good. You're welcome. <laughs> Have a good day. weekend. Click subscribe on your streaming platform so you know when the latest episode has dropped. Be the source of knowledge and the maven that other professionals are excited to refer.